week in Revolt Black News, we're giving y'all a town hall from the good folks over at Our Black Party. Now see, we're doing this now because when we exercise our right to vote now and over the next couple of weeks, it's not about a political party. It's about people, specifically our people, because see, our people, we have the ability to impact this country more positively and directly than any political party ever could. And that's because we know our needs better than any white-led and organized group. See, our needs essentially boil down to two things, freedom and liberty. Now, these two things may seem on the surface like they're the same thing, but when you really break them down, you see that they hit completely differently. Let's start with freedom. Now, freedom, that's an internal job. It's the right to act, speak, or think without hindrance. But liberty, liberty is about the outside. It's the external. It's the freedom to move about this society autonomously, free from the authorities weighing in and impeding our very way of life. So how do we reconcile these two? Well, we know in the age of social media that we're all full of individual thought, right? We know this. It's clear that our minds are free. But then when we reconcile that against the construct, the confines even of this country, we see that we are far from liberated. So my question to you is, are you ready to vote for your liberation? Welcome to Revolt Black News. I'm your host, Ebony K. Williams. Now, this is a very special episode where our Black Party is going to focus on Gen Z and the future of Black politics. Also, what's at stake for our community and how we need to step up to own our politics? It's a lot to get into. So here are the co-chairs of our Black Party, Dr. Wes Bellamy and Mayor Candace Hollingsworth with an opening word. Thanks, guys. My name is Dr. Wes Bellamy, and I'm the national co-chairman of our Black Party. We're excited to be here today for our national town hall right here on Revolt TV and Revolt Black News. I got my national co-chairwoman, Mayor Candace Hollingsworth of Hyattsville, Maryland with me. Mayor Candace, what's good? Thanks, Wes. I'm Candace Hollingsworth, national co-chair for Our Black Party, and we have an exciting lineup of conversations for you today. Today, we're talking about what it means to own our politics, why it's important, and the urgency of this moment. We're gonna talk about What's at stake for Black America in 2020 and beyond? And last and certainly not least, we're going to hear from some phenomenal young leaders who are going to talk about Generation Z, the Black agenda, and the future of Black politics. Don't go away because this is going to be a wonderful time with all of us with our Black Party. Our Black Party's motto is simple. Before you were a Democrat, before you were a Republican, before you were an Independent, before you had any political affiliation, you were Black. And there is nothing wrong with Black people owning our politics and censoring the needs of our people. Dr. West is right. Our Black Party is a political organization that is established to power the Black agenda. We aim to change the laws and the lawmakers that undermine Black existence. And we do that by holding elected officials accountable, but by educating voters, that's you, the everyday person about what it means to own our politics, what that looks like in our communities, and how we can use that education to move forward a Black agenda for all of us. Stay tuned. This special edition of Revolt Black News starts now. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Dr. Wes Bellamy, national co-chair of Our Black Party and author of When White Supremacy Knocks Fight Back, How White People Can Use Their Privilege, How Black People Can Use Their Power. We are here for the Our Black Party Town Hall, and we have a phenomenal group of folks who will be tapping in and talking about the real. This panel specifically, Generation Z, the Black agenda and the future of Black politics. I am the former executive director of Young People For, but most of my work has been at the intersection of equity, social impact strategy, and centering the most marginalized. Right now, I'm consulting with different groups on the ground, making sure that we're building power not only for November and beyond. So excited to be here with you all. Hi, I'm Jameson Ford. I'm 13 years old. I'm an eighth grader at Jefferson Academy Middle School in Southeast Washington, D.C. I am originally from Memphis, Tennessee, but I've lived in D.C. for the last eight years. I work with D.C. Girls Coalition and United Leaders for Freedom, and I'm really excited to be here. Hey, everybody. I am Wisconsin State Representative Kaylin Haywood II. I am a state from Wisconsin. I represent Milwaukee, which is our biggest city. I'm also the youngest elected official in Wisconsin. 
I won at the age of 19 in 2018. And since I've been in office, we've accomplished many of the things we said we would accomplish. But the most important thing has been inspiring young people to lead as well. Uh, so <laughs> National Director of the NAACP Youth and College Division, Tiffany Dina Lofton. I'm always going to represent L.A., born and raised, but I'm in D.C. I've been in D.C. for the last 12 years. Uh, and I serve and work with 25,000 young black people across the country, making sure that we do three things develop new leaders, organize real campaigns, and build institutional power. Been in the job for almost three years now, and I can't wait till this election is over. Founder of Concerned Citizens, which is a young activist group that started here uh, in Washington, D.C. in May on the back end of the protests. Um, because it's not enough for just symbolic actions, it's not enough for performative gestures that show that Black Lives Matter, what we want is to actually um, usher in uh, Black power black political power, black social power, black economic power uh, in a ways that will affirm that black lives matter. Now our black party, we've adopted the black to the futures 2020 black agenda. Shout out to my sister Alicia Garza and all the folks out there at the black futures lab. But we want to ask you all, what does a black agenda look like for generation Z? What does it look like right now in 2020? It looks like a commitment to um, resourcing these young black people. Uh, as I said in my introductory remarks, it's not enough to say that black lives matter without a commitment uh, to showing that those lives matter. You know, for me, um, while a lot of people found out about me at March on Washington, I actually trace um, a lot of my notoriety to being a 13 year old, um, the youngest to be admitted to Howard University. And part of that um, even being possible was a commitment um, from a very young age from educators uh, to really affirm the value of my life, to tell me uh, that I could be more um, than what the news will have us uh, portrayed as. You know, all too often they'll show us as the victims or they'll show us as perpetrators of, uh, you know, great atrocities, but never as the kings and queens that we are. And so I think that it starts, um, you know, even before we even get to the resources, right? The single most resource that we can do is give these young people confidence uh, to move into the future fearlessly and uh, boldly. I think from there, um, just helping them color within the lines. Young people know exactly what they want to do. They just need the help to do. Well, one thing definitely in particular that I would like to touch on that really piggybacks off of what I said, I think is investing in funding into black schools. I got the chance to study abroad two years ago and it really, really opened my eyes into what it's like to be black in America, what it's like to be black in another country, different experiences that kids go through in America, different experiences that kids get to go through in other countries. And I really feel like it gave me a way to see through a different lens that I know a lot of kids that are my age and a lot of black kids that are my age don't get to do. If it does not have them at the center, it's not a black agenda. I think mm. that we have had multiple conversations over time and I've been organizing for 12 years. I'm 31 now, so I'm a millennial. My job is to make the space for the Generation Z. My job is to make sure that they have the platform, the resources, the titles, the agency, the job experience, the resume experience, the, the relationships to build that agenda that we've been talking about. And that agenda is not just about policy anymore. It's also about the core values the NAACP Youth and College Division last year in the uh, fall hosted a policy retreat with Dr. Davis, shout out to Charles Davis that we most of us know. And he came and he taught young black people about policy, but it was about turning your imagination into paper to move. And so if, mm -hmm. again, if young black people are not a part of the center of that, it's not an agenda. When I think about the role that young folks should play, and as I mentioned, I am a recovering executive director. I left my role at Young People for about three weeks ago. Um, but one of the things I challenge us to consider is when we think about history, young folks, particularly young Black folks, were always at the center pushing this country, countries around the world to be better versions of themselves. Um, the reason, one of the reasons why I left young people for is that it should be run by younger people. Mm. I had been in the role for four years. And if in four years I didn't disseminate the information that younger people needed to be successful, I wasn't committed to the work. So I think mm. what we should do is realize that young black folks have always been at the center. But the question is, are we making space and moving out the way for them to lead the work? So let's come to you, Representative Haywood. In your opinion, I mean, being one of the youngest black elected officials in the country, what role should they or do they uh, Generational Z 
Generation Z, excuse me, play in terms of developing a black agenda? Um, I cannot tell you how many times I've been in the room over the last decade and we're in a meeting and literally there's a decade between me and the next youngest person in the room. And we talk, they're talking about how do you engage young people and how do you get them involved? How do you get them to listen? And my thing is, you got to give young people an outlet. You got to give them, you have to let them know they're being heard. You can't make this agenda. It's, so it's like to the doctor and telling the doctor that your, your, your mom's sick, but you don't bring your mom with you. No, the patient got to be in the room when you're talking about what's wrong. So I think that youth serving organizations and youth-led orgs give young people the opportunity. I know if it wasn't for youth, ser- youth serving or youth-led organizations, I would not be where I'm at today at all. To a certain extent, it's not only a marathon, but it's a relay with the baton being passed from generation to generation. Many of y'all, or many of us, I say we, we snatched that baton from other generations and said, we're just going to lead our way. We're going to do what we need to do. How do you find that boldness to just step in and say, I'm going to lead, like I'm going to do this, but also do it in a way that is effective and, and not as much self-serving? At the end of the day, um, you know, my, my dad has Southern rearings from, from Virginia, right? And so I was always taught to respect my elders. And, and I think that there is definitely a deference that is paid towards those uh, who came here before me because they have a level of insight and wisdom that I don't have. You know, I'm only drawn from 25 years of experience. But we have to also be intellectually honest about the fact that we will be the ones to carry it forward. And so that requires fearlessness. That requires uh, having a faith in our leadership in the leadership of our young peers uh, to the left and to the right of us, uh, that we can do the job. And, and I think just that confidence um, is, is all of uh, what, it, what it takes to really get it done. Dr. West, thank you for that incredible discussion about the future of black politics. Now, of course, that's too much to get into in just one conversation. So we're going to pick that up a little later in the show. But before we go to break, we want to keep this energy going. Kedron Bryant, who stole our hearts this summer with his voice and his message, is with us for a youth call to action. Let's take a look. I just want to live. God protect me. I'm a young black man. What's up, y'all? My name is Kedron Bryant, and I just want to say to my generation, that to just to keep staying strong and keep believing in yourself. If you have dreams, chase after them and don't let anybody discourage you from what you want to be. And to the parents and the adults, make sure you use your voice and go to the polls and please vote. And my mom, she made a great and powerful acronym that just says, voice our tears electronically. And I believe that that's what we need to do. We need to voice our tears electronically make sure you register to vote because that can provide a good future for my generation and just so that my generation can say that we are enjoying life and that we can go outside and just keep fighting for what is right and keep on saying freedom we need equality because that is what we need in this world today so make sure to all the parents and adults go to the polls and vote please god bless you thank you Welcome back to Revolt Black News. These are today's headlines. Now we start with the Trump campaign who has now publicly thanked Ice Cube for his help in assisting with the Platinum Plan, which touts a $500 billion package for black Americans. Now while many were skeptic about the legitimacy of Ice Cube's affiliation, the rapper himself confirmed the news by saying this, quote, every side is the dark side for us here in America. They're all the same until something changes for us. They all lie and they all cheat, but we cannot afford to not negotiate with whoever is in power or our condition in this country will never change. Our justice is bipartisan. And to further clarify, Cube went on to post this video. Let's watch. You know, they put $500 billion on the table and, you know, but who knows, you know, who knows what's gonna really happen, you know? Um, I just know one of them going to win. And I don't know if it can really matter to us. We got to just push whoever is in there because ain't nobody really solved our problems. So I actually agree with Cube's point that we cannot afford to not negotiate with whoever is in power. 
But the flip side of that argument is also that we don't negotiate with terrorists. Furthermore, I'm curious about the timing of Q deciding to cross the aisle and, and talk to Trump about what's best for black America now, after the man's first term and while his second term hangs in the balance. And Trump knows what we all know, that his ability to be reelected in this country will turn on black America's vote. So my question to Cube is, why offer up space and your platform and even your ear to this man after the fact? The fact is Trump has been in office for almost four years. Why not a $500 billion plan for black America year one of your administration or year two of your administration or even year three of your administration? Yeah, that tells me this is a bunch of BS. I feel like Brother Cube is being used right now in a way that's very manipulative by this administration. Uh, and frankly, I hate to see it. But we'll stay tuned and we'll keep you posted. And with early voting kicking off in states like Georgia and my home state of North Carolina, several citizens have said they have waited in lines for up to 10 hours to simply cast their ballot. Okay, so listen, y'all, we knew this would happen, right? We knew these types of voter suppression tactics would be employed to keep our voices silent in this election. Uh, but that's exactly what this is. It's voter suppression, and we will not be discouraged by it. Instead, everybody, please, I encourage you to stay encouraged because there's a record-breaking voter turnout already. 14 million people have already voted in this election early. It's unheard of. I think we're looking at what's possibly going to be the biggest voter turnout in American history. And we, the black community, are going to take full part. Uh, we're going to show up. We're going to bring our waters, our snacks, our meals, and everything else to make sure that we cast our ballots and that our voices are heard in this election. And yesterday, the Senate Judiciary Committee concluded its questioning of the Supreme Court nominee, Amy Coney Barrett. Now, with a lot of scrutiny about Judge Barrett's religious background and how it could potentially influence her judgments on the court, the judge was actually asked specifically about her thoughts around the George Floyd killing. Here's what she had to say. Have you seen the George Floyd video? I have. What impact did it have on you? Um, Senator, as you might imagine, given that I have two black children, that was very very personal for my family. Now, in terms of the peaceful transition of power that every American president in history has had to adhere to, Senator Cory Booker raised this question. Here was the judge's answer. Well, Senator, that seems to me to be pulling me in a little bit into this question of whether the president has said that he would not peacefully leave office. And so to the extent that this is a political controversy right now, as a judge, I want to stay out of it, and I don't want to express a view. And on the issue of presidents being able to pardon themselves of crimes, Senator Booker had even one more question for Judge Barrett. Here's her response. Well, Senator Booker, that would be a legal question. That would be a constitutional question. And so in keeping with my obligation not to give hints, previews, or forecasts of how I would resolve the case, that's not one that I can answer. Okay, so there is a lot to unpack about these Judiciary Senate hearings. And here are a couple things, some key takeaways I want y'all to pay attention to. Know for a fact that much like the 2004 presidential election, it is a very high likelihood that this presidential election, the results will be decided by the United States Supreme Court. Keep that in mind. Now, Judge Amy Coney Barrett, who will very likely be confirmed, She's evaded questions about how she would rule on several things, major Supreme Court decisions like Roe v. Wade or the Affordable Care Act. Keep in mind, the Affordable Care Act has given health care to many, many black Americans in this country. Now, one thing she has been clear about, though, is the fact that she is what we call an originalist when it comes to the Constitution. That is an interpretation of our Constitution that adheres to the way the document was written at the time, based on the, the beliefs of the reasonable person living at that time. So I don't have to tell y'all, we, we know what the Constitution thought about black folks at the time of its writing. Uh, we were not granted citizenship, and we were not even free in this country that we built. Uh, so keep in mind that that is Judge Barrett's belief system, so that we are clear. And listen, y'all, if you care about who sits on the United States Supreme Court, and let me be clear, if you don't, you should. You need to be watching these hearings, watching this vote, and paying attention. And Megan Thee Stallion was in the news this week, but this time not for her music, but for taking a stance for Black womanhood. 
This week, Meg released an op-ed for the New York Times all about protecting black women. In it, she said, we live in a country where we have the freedom to criticize elected officials. And it's ridiculous that some people think the simple phrase, protect black women, is controversial. We deserve to be protected as human beings. Meg and the New York Times also dropped a companion video. Let's watch. What does it mean to be a woman of color? She's got to be strong because that's just the expectation. Okay, so Meg's not new to this, right? Just a couple weeks ago, we got a taste of Meg's activism when she performed on Saturday Night Live, and she used that stage to call out and criticize Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron. So whether it's on SNL, whether it's in the New York Times, we and I personally applaud Meg for using her celebrity status, the stages she's on, and the platforms she has earned to do this important work. Shout out to you, Meg. All right, now we've got more commercials on the way, but when we come back, Dr. West continues the conversation about Gen Z and the future of black politics. We've got much more Revolt Black News after this. Hi, my name is Isabella Robles. My name is Mal Jung. My name is Felicia White. My name is Janiah Jung. My name is Shandaya Stevens. My name is Latoya Wilkinson. My name is Janiah Reed. My name is Miley Mercado. My name is Chris Parker. My name is Sheen Brown. Hi, my name is Shaq Conti, and I'm a student at Capital Park Parliament. I'm currently 14 and I'm not eligible to vote this year. However, I still understand how important this election is in shaping the future of you to look and come from the same community as me. That is why I ask you, 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 to please go out on November 3rd to cast your vote because there are many things at stake during this election. This election will help shape policies which directly impact communities such as Blacks, immigrants, and LGBTQ. We are voting to change a broken system that oppresses our black and brown people. Women's rights are being put at stake. Currently, there are policies in the White House made by males that dictate the decisions of women's bodies. The people that are elected to run this country can change the way we live our lives. The economy can change completely. They could spend it on unnecessary things, or they could show leadership and use it on the good of the country especially in the education system. We vote for it has the power to change the narrative and help bring a voice to communities which have been silenced. November 3rd will be a turning point in history. Every vote matters. We are voting for a change towards a brighter future for everyone. We are voting on November 3rd to make our voices heard. We deserve a better, brighter, more hopeful future. Vote and make a change. Stand up, vote. Let your voices be heard. With the help of your vote, we can give women even more of a say in these political settings. So, that is why I ask you, those of you who are at home watching this, to please go out on November 3rd to cast your vote. So vote, because my future depends on it. Because my future depends on it. 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 Ready, set, see you at the polls. Welcome back to Revolt Black News. So we're going to pick things back up with Dr. West's conversation about the black agenda and the future of black politics. Let's watch. What are some of the things that we're hearing on the ground or you all are currently hearing or were hearing on the ground about the needs of Generation Zers or Gen Zers um, specifically for what they want to see moving forward? Let me tell you something. And I don't know if it's because of social media only. I think it has a huge uh, uh, influence over this. But what young people want to see is they're tired of the BS. They don't want to see yeah. no more fakeness. They don't want to see yeah. no more delays. They don't want to see no more people making stuff up to run for office. Like there is so much checking of authenticity. There's so much checking of realness and so much checking of, are you really for us or are you really against us? And those young people are the folks who are outside, not only protesting, but starting the riots in the community. Those young people are the ones who are saying, listen, we know it's a national health pandemic, but regardless of that, we're gonna go outside and knock on the door of the police department because we wanna make sure we get justice for Breonna Taylor. And so if we continue, if they continue to do that, not only are they going to speak truth to power, but they're also going to demand change in ways that we haven't seen before. And I'm excited about it. And I'm praying for our safety because there's so much going on. But I know we yeah. can do it together. To Tiffany's point, what we want is a real commitment to change, a real commitment mm -hmm. to change the condition so that we don't have to continue to be out here protesting so that our kids won't have to inherit protesting. You know, when we look at 
uh, the conversation around so many different things, whether it's college debt forgiveness, uh, whether it's housing and healthcare as a human right. We have been told for so long, we can't do this, we can't do that. We've also witnessed during our time, Wall Street get bailed out. We've witnessed during our time, massive military expenditure, a commitment to things uh, that stand in disalignment with what we care about. We care about people, we care about each other. And I think right now in this moment, um, young people are coming together and really holding uh, elected officials and institutions accountable because there is now more transparency than ever existed before because the internet makes information so accessible. We can see those hard dollar figures and where the allocation of our taxpayer dollars are going to, to say, okay, you know, I don't want this to happen with my money. It should go here. And the perfect uh, sort of anchor point for that is, um, you know, the, the conversation around defunding the police, right? The idea that defunding the police is refunding the people. It's a reallocation to the resources that will make Black Lives Matter, Black educational outcomes, Black healthcare, wraparound social services, um, the things that we truly, truly, truly care about. Another thing that I can say that um, young people are tired of, young Black people, young Brown people, young Indigenous people, young marginalized communities, they are tired of a politics that says that we can't that says wait, that says it'll come later. You know, we're tired of a democratic party that all of a sudden gets to be the rubber stamp party of minorities because they're slightly left of a far right party. We're tired of a politics that says, you know, that we have to wait for things that our grandparents waited for. Uh, and we're here now in this moment with all of the uh, energy that we have to demand uh, different right now in real time and that, um, it plays on a dynamic of movement politics as opposed to electoral politics because electoral politics is a respecter of time. It says I'll wait for a midterm, I'll wait every two years, I'll wait every four years. Movement politics is a politics that says we need our change right now. What we want most is to really flip this, this world that we inherited upside down and make it more reflective of the values that we hold near and dear. When you see the mutual aid that's happening on the ground, when you see the organizing that's happening on the ground, what Gen Z is saying is like, we're not going to wait and we're going to build our own stuff. We're going to do yeah. movement organizing and we're going to leverage electoral politics. So I find that they are the mirror generation, whereas millennials, we're more of the frame. Just a phenomenal point that you all make. And I think it leads to our last question for this panel specifically. We know what our Black Party is looking to do when we talk about centering the needs of Black folk, when we talk about finding the political home for Black folk, when we talk about making sure that our agenda is met and holding elected officials and those who are on the ground accountable, when we talk about making sure that we train up a new political army and ensuring that, again, our voices are heard. That's our mission. But for the future of Black politics, what do you all think it looks like? In your personal opinion, it's seeing people that are actually from the communities in need in places of power, seeing people that are actually from these places, seeing people that know what the experience is like firsthand, actually making the decisions. I think the future of black politics is the future of politics. I think that mm. for too, too long, folks have counted black people out of not getting engaged in the process, not going out to vote, not going to run for office. When you think about elected official, you may think about President Obama. But nine times out of 10, most people in the country aren't gonna think of a black elected official or a young black elected official at that. But I think black people are getting engaged in politics more and more, and we see that in 2020. Uh, folks are hitting the pavement on the ground. What you're gonna see is the politics is gonna start getting uh, more real, one, but also get younger. You see young, young people get engaged. I think that's the future we're headed towards. Yeah, politics are people. And when I think of the future of black politics, I think about how it needs to be intersectional. I see us censoring folks who have been often forgotten and creating a space where they're not only censored and welcome, so a space where black, fat, trans, disabled, you know, women and differently able folks are able to live their best lives. I think that's the future of black politics. Um, here, so let me let me let me put some perspective on how I think about the word politics because that's important to my answer. I think about politics in terms of who has power and who doesn't have power. Right? Politics is not about the system of democracy or elections or any of that mess. It's about who has power and who doesn't have power. So your question is asking me, what does it mean for people to have black power in the future? And here's my answer: mm. One, it looks like America listening to black women. Period. Point blank. It also looks like us erasing all of the systems 
not just voter suppression, which we're seeing a lot of now, but the systems that do not allow us to participate in the so-called democracy that we currently have and allows our black people to set up what access, what agency and what uh, the approval and affirmation of democracy looks like for black people in this country. It means that we're able to not only regain power on a, on a, uh, a level that's equitable, but also low key in a way that just moves everybody else in coalition to understand that our agenda benefits everybody else's. You know, remembering that we are each other's business. When I think about building black power, it is understanding that black people were always a communal people. We ate together, uh, we hunted together, uh, we lived together, we loved together. The aggressive individualism is a mention of white supremacy. That's not us. And if we are to usher in our revolution, it does not look like siloing off, getting successful and going to this corner, getting successful and going to this corner, but instead uh, coming together with a spirit of unity, um, bringing together all the resources that we have, all of the wisdom that we have, all of the love that we have, and uh, using that as a catalyst to make sure that we get everything we deserve. Thank each and every single one of you for joining us today on that panel. You all did a phenomenal job. We want to make sure that everyone remembers before you were a Republican, before you were a Democrat, before you were an independent, you were black. And there is nothing wrong with us censoring the needs of black people. There is nothing wrong with us owning our politics. And there is nothing wrong with ensuring that we are put first. Dr. West, thank you and your panel for that informative conversation. Now we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, Leah Webb leads a conversation about the path to liberation. We've got more Revolt Black News after this. Welcome back to Revolt Black News. So now Leah Webb is going to moderate a vital, critical discussion about what's at stake for our community and what the path to liberation must look like. Thanks, Leah. Greetings, everyone. My name is Leah Webb. I am a former city council member from Binghamton, New York, and also a national steering committee member for our Black Party. And I am so excited to be here with all of you for this incredible panel that we are going to lean into 2020 and beyond, what's at stake for the Black community? And we are joined by some incredible panelists, but most importantly, leaders from across the country. They're doing incredible work for our community. So let's get into it. So we all know there's a lot going on right now in our national political climate. Most certainly, um, Black Lives Matter movement has had create has created an incredible footprint, not just here in the U.S., but globally. And so and thinking about our current political climate and the Black Lives Matter movement, how have these things impacted the state of affairs for the Black community? For me, it's more of like, we, we as the Black community have now had to basically stand in front of the mirror, um, not just us, but America around, um, I, I keep saying, and I know many people are saying right now, like we're in the middle of a racial reckoning. Like, we're, we're gonna force, we're in this moment of being forced to have certain conversations that we were uncomfortable with having, not just within the broader American context, but within the black community. And what does liberation look like for us? When we talk about liberation, when we talk about liber, um, you know, liberation theology, what does that really encompass for us as a black community? And when I say black, that means all the diversity of our community. I am Haitian Dominican American. I represent a particular community that is Black, but has been left out of many conversations. When we think about our queer brothers and sisters, our trans brothers and sisters, we have to understand that we also are now in this moment in a current state of affairs where we have to have a, com a conversation as Black people of what it means to move together towards power, towards liberation, towards an advancement of our community. And I think we're just now in a place where we're starting to have those conversations. I wanna lay, add to this foundation and underscore um, the importance of acknowledging that this particular moment in the movement for all Black lives is not the start of the journey, but the most recent iteration of it. I have issued a press release about the most recent murder of two Black trans women, right? Um, this is there now more than 30 Black trans women who have been murdered this year. This is a disproportionate crisis given the numbers of Black trans people that show up and exist in the world, especially women. When I say women, I mean cis and trans. And, and, and I, I'm sitting in this space because even still to this moment, when we talk about the work required to ensure that Black lives matter, there's still not enough of us who are doing the work to ensure that all Black lives matter. 
Um, and so I want to celebrate that, which has been done, and also remind us that there's still a whole lot of work to be done. So I just want to co-sign every single thing. So our Black Party, we have actually adopted the uh, Black Agenda 2020, which envisions a future where Black people are powerful in our democracy, our economy, our communities, and our society. So in your opinion, what does a prosperous future for Black people look like to you? Oh, I could jump in and start there. It has to, it has to look like an increased quality of life for Black people that starts fundamentally with us changing our neighborhoods at the local level. I'm talking about investment of infrastructure. I'm talking about investment in education. I'm talking about a radical change in the way that we police so that we walk out of our front doors and feel safe. I want to suggest that that actually starts with, which is so beautiful about this moment, a new identity, a new identity for Black folks. So on the top of that agenda, I want to say that that new identity is unapologetic. It no longer asks to compromise. It no longer says that we have to stand in line or, or get in line behind one party or the next if neither one of them are serving us. It's an agenda that says that every policy that we fight for can unapologetically put Black folks and our needs at the forefront. So my agenda says, put at the top of the agenda, put, put under bold, this agenda is going to be unapologetic, uncompromisingly Black. Capital B, Black. And then let's start to build underneath there. I want to actually, um, because Vanessa, you actually um, presented an opportunity for me to pivot a little bit more around kind of the this idea of telling our stories. My next question, I want to direct to uh, Reverend Stephen Green. I'd like for you to talk about what role or roles do you think faith and the church need to play in this moment? When we talk about faith in the Black church, we, we recognize that our faith is cultural that we have a cultural spirituality that unites us, whether or not you adhere to a, uh, a Palestinian Jew named Jesus or whether you adhere to his comrade and friend by the name of, of, of Muhammad, that African spirituality is innately who we are as a culture, as a people, as a people of the diaspora. And I think that is what has given us a lot of times the language to imagine what's yet possible, that our spiritual language, our faith language, our, whether through the black church or whether through a mosque or whether through a synagogue has, or whether through the shrine of the black Madonna has helped us to communicate a language of the divine that allows us to step beyond time to imagine what is yet possible. And as we talked about the restrictions that, that yet stand in the way of our liberation through politics, I think it's also important to note that, that, that faith leaders have always been able to use their spirituality to see beyond the fragments of, of, of this democracy that has been fragmented. It was, it was a spiritual vision of Nat Turner who saw himself liberated beyond an emancipation proclamation, beyond a voting rights act, beyond uh, a, a, even a civil war, is that they recognize that their spiritual tradition grounds them into a space that allows them to know that they are there's divinity wrapped inside of their humanity and that is what yearns for freedom that is what yet uh, uh seeks the, and desires commonality and common purpose and that is who we are as a people as as a as a lineage all the way to ancient egypt and ancient kemet is that we've always found that our spirituality has helped to shape our conversation around ethics around morality around justice and, and when we talk about what stands in the way of us getting HR 40 of us. And I believe that when we talk about bills that need to be included and prioritized on a black agenda, I believe reparations is, in, is it should be at the top of that list because until we're able to redistribute the wealth that white supremacy has taken and stolen from black and brown bodies in this nation, that we will not be free. And I believe that also means in a re radical redistribution of land, that the United States owns so much government, publicly financed land, that that land should be redistributed to black and brown people in this country as well as land that has been profited upon by those who have been able to exploit slavery and use capitalism for their own good on um, black and brown bodies, including the prison industrial complex. All of those resources must be seized by the government, just like they seized my grandmother's land called an eminent domain to create a highway. That then the land needs to be seized back and redistributed to black and brown people in a form of cash settlements and cash payouts, as well as investments and resources to our black and brown communities. There's this theme that we're riding on around like reimagining vision and so in that same vein, right, health is very important. I want to go over to you, uh, Vanessa, because your organization, Girl Trek, 
is the largest public health nonprofit for Black women and girls. Since 2016, we have had um, a campaign called the Black Girl Justice League, which has supported um, voter, voter turnout by getting organizers in our movement across the country to lead walks to the polls. We are now, um, hello COVID, leading walks to the post office. We are now doing voter education around um, how we, what, are, what are the local issues that we need to be supporting. And for Girl Trek this year, most importantly, what the volunteers and the organizers in our community are going to do is we're gonna show up in force to every vulnerable precinct in this country. And we will be there all night and you will see us in our blue shirts and we will walk you home if you need to be there late and we will have water if you're thirsty and we will have songs if you are tired, but we are going to make sure that every single black person, white person, brown person, whoever, and I don't even care what party in this conversation that you're showing up for, but man, as a democracy, we need, uh, David does, yeah, David does, but I'm gonna tell you this. Okay, I'm just got a little bit concerned. <laughs> democracy and all of the work that we just talked about that needs to happen right is the two senators in California they're two that it only works if we start to show up to the polls as a country and I'm saying uh, the percentage of people in this country who are voting is shameful so I just want I want to call it like it is like it is shameful the amount of effort that we have and billions of dollars that we have when how many percentage of the people are even going to show up and I want to acknowledge the disenfranchisement of our brothers and sisters who are felons and I want to acknowledge the the um, the gerrymandering that is going on in this country. And I want to acknowledge that all of the things that happened to dismantle the Voting Rights Act. So this is not just that we are apathetic. I do know that there's a lot of things that go into it, but I'm saying that every single person better show up. And I actually do believe that actually if every single person show up, that on the good side of that will be enough people who really know how to move this country forward and we would prevail. I think we would prevail, but we have got to get out there. I want to call our attention to the thousands of people who are currently incarcerated in jails and prisons, many of which are hotspots for COVID. In this particular moment, when we're dealing with the pandemic, we have to be extremely mindful about the people who have been left behind in, in cages and are being sent there to die. And as we're talking about the commander in chief having COVID with all of the resources that this country has to give him for his health and to give his wife, there are people who can't even get a pillow, right? And so we have to keep that in the forefront of our minds and find ways again, locally to be of assistance and of help to people who really, really, really won't get it if we don't stand in the gap. So y'all are just, y'all are just dope. Um, so again, thank you all so, so much on behalf of our, our Black Party, the efforts that we are doing, this coalition we're building in conjunction with all of you and everyone that's uh, watching. Please, it is so critical, not just simply for 2020, but beyond. Let us commit to uplifting each other, holding each other, loving each other, supporting each other, keep doing the good work that is necessary, not just for us, but for those that come after us. So with that, I want to thank you all for being a part of this incredible panel. Keep up the incredible work you're doing. If folks don't already, please follow us on social media, Our Black Party. And again, we're in this together. Thank you all so, so much. Take care. All right, listen, thank you guys so much for spotlighting how we can truly develop a path to liberation. Now we're going to take a final break. And when we come back, Mayor Candace Hollingworth leads a conversation about bridging our history into actually owning our politics. So stick around. We've got much more Revolt Black News after this. Welcome back to Revolt Black News. Today's episode is going to conclude with a conversation led by Mayor Candace Hollingsworth about how we can truly own our politics. Thanks, Mayor Hollingsworth. Hello, I'm Candace Hollingsworth, National Co-Chair for Our Black Party, and I am excited to have with me three phenomenal and outstanding individuals whom I respect for their work and I admire for their personal missions and their ministry to our community as a whole. I want to introduce first our Grammy-nominated entrepreneur and philanthropist, Mr. J. Wayne Jenkins, better known as Jeezy the former leader of the Baltimore chapter of the Black Panther Party and executive producer of The Real News, Mr. Eddie Conway. And last and certainly not least, principal for Amari Public Affairs, host of Hello Somebody podcast. You got to do the side with it. Hello Somebody podcast 
and overall hell-raising humanitarian, the Honorable Senator Nina Turner. Thank you all for joining us today. So there is this concept, right, of, um, and it's not a concept, and honestly, it's a way of life for, for many people, is coalitions, right, and seeking to have broad bases of support and engagement for a common cause. Yet one of the things that I think many Black people are frustrated with is that we come to the table in service of coalitions, and we, we come with everyone else's needs, you know, we carry those on our back as well, on our backs as well, but somehow we neglect or we um, compromise when it comes to the things that are also very important and critical to the black community. What does that, um, what does it look like to you to truly own your politics in this, in this world where coalition is necessary? in order to advance a cause. You know, during the Great Recession, African-American community lost about 40% of its wealth. How did it lose its wealth, Sister Turner? I'm glad that you asked. Because the wealth of most African-Americans, and by extension, middle-class folks, it's in our homes. And so if you are blessed enough to own a home, that is both your biggest asset and your biggest debt. And the Great Recession wipe that out for African-American community disproportionately because we know that our homes, depending on where you live, if you live in a community that is majority African-American, the value of your house is not the same if that same house was placed in a community where our white sisters and brothers navigate. And so all of the whole notion of redlining and devaluing not just the personhood of African-Americans, but everything that we touch, every place that we are able to navigate has been devalued. Those things happened on purpose and we need to undo them on purpose, politically, socially, economically, environmentally, health outcomes don't get started. We die at higher rates, you know, four to five times more than our white sisters and brothers. All of that stuff is happening by design. I'm not saying that COVID was just, you know, infecting the African American. What I am saying is that there is a beginning to this that did not start with COVID. And we want to talk about pandemic. Hell, Black folks been in the pandemic from day zero. And so for us to control our destiny, we have to look at the spheres of power across the board and have a strategy to be able to control those spheres or at least minimally be able to influence those fears and along the way pick up allies and co-conspirators? Uh, well, I, I look at it like this. I look at it like um, if our politics were a business, our business, um, and we didn't own it and we worked for somebody else, then we would clearly work for somebody else. We have to take the pay that they give us and so on and so forth. Um, even in our communities, I also believe that that's a lot of the problem with our communities is we don't own our own things. We don't own our own supermarkets. We don't own our own uh, uh, real estate companies, what have you. And I think that that's the path that we should be walking on. Absolutely. is about ownership. I think that politics are no different, you know, because if it's for the people, by the people, and vice versa, then, then it's for us because they understand our problems, our issues, and the things that we go through. You know, even with voting now, you know, we should get in the um, the rhythm of showing up in numbers, the rhythm of going and actually putting our name on ballots so that when it's time for us to shift and, and start to vote for our own people, that we already have a system in place. And it's our system. And that's what I truly believe. It's like you you, you, you got to start somewhere. So we got to rally our troops. And everybody knows when it comes to our culture and our people, our strength is in numbers. Always have been. It's what we do. If you wear a black tee, everybody wears a black tee. If you wear a hat, they wear a hat. That's hip-hop culture. That's black culture. It's like once we put that together for ownership, for things that are going to benefit us, I think we'll see some real results. You know, and I, and I would add to that, you know, it's um... – and I guess as Audrey Lord said it, that you can't, you know, change the master's house using the master's tools. Um, and what that really means for me is that we need to create our own institutions 
We need to create networks and coalitions and we need to be in charge. We need to be in charge of those things. We need to design things that will deliver the things that we need. We need to withdraw to some degree because we've always been forced to be outside peeping in anyway uh, and, and, and create our uh, networks of health systems, create our networks of food, create our networks of education. We need to create the institutions that we want to see in the future that will impact our younger generations. We need to create that now. Our Black Party, as I said before, we are just starting. This is really just the beginning for what we are doing. And the vid the future that I see for Our Black Party is a grand one. Um, and, and Lord willing, it lasts well beyond either of us are still here. Is there a vision or is there something that you can see that we need to do to be able to sustain this work and this movement, this effort well beyond November 2020 and well beyond our lifetimes? Well, I'll chime in on that. I think um, what I would like to see from my people is to be on the same page worldwide with everything when it comes to politics, um, when it comes to owning businesses, when it comes to uh, these Fortune 500 companies, when it comes to these these funds and all these different things, it's like because we have the ability to do that. We come from a culture of you, you don't give us things, we go out and we make it happen. But the thing that I do see is like once we get it, everybody kind of disperse and go their own way, and we, we're not on the same page. I feel like when you talk about politics, if we were all on the same page and we all understood what the goals were and what we wanted and what needed to be changed, and we all stood for that. Nothing can stop us. The quote that I believe encapsulates the message that I'm trying to get over right now comes from a pastor from Emeritus from my home city of Cleveland, Ohio, the Reverend Dr. Otis Moss Jr. And he said these words, that the struggle is forever. So we are forever in the struggle. That is my mm. message to our That every generation is given the baton, so to speak. You know, I ran track for 40, the relay race. And... I was fast. I was the first leg. Hello, somebody on that one. The only difference between the 440 race and what our black party is trying to do and what we do as black people in this country is that that race never ends. The struggle is forever. So we are forever in the struggle. We got to train for this. This ain't, this ain't playing games. It's about who has the power and how they wield that power. And are they wielding that power on our behalf? These are This is life and death here. This is whether the water was poisoned in Flint real. Hello, somebody. I want to thank each of our panelists, each of our guests this evening for joining us. Thank you for honoring this space. Thank you for your wisdom. Um, and thank you for your candor above everything else. Because we know that we can't fool people by feeding them, feeding them nonsense. We have to make sure we tell people the truth always and um, without sacrifice. So thank you. And thank each of you for watching. All right, Mayor Hollingsworth and panel, thank you so much for bringing that home in this final discussion. We appreciate everybody tapping in to our Black Party National Town Hall right here on Vote Black News. Now, we need you to take the next step. A lot of people are protesting. A lot of people are figuring out what to do next. And in order for us to create real change, not only do we have to vote, we have to plan. So if you want to be a part of the solution and not just the talk, join us, www.ourblackparty.org. The time for talk is over. It's time to own our politics. We'll see you at the polls, and we'll see you in the streets.